Welcome back, everyone, to 1001 Classic Short Stories and Tales. This is your host, John Hagedorn, and today, a special story, The Dog of Montargis, retold by James Baldwin. This unusual old story reminds us that loyalty is the virtue that helps us stand fast beside our friends, and our memories of our friends. In the old castle of Montargis in France, there was once a stone mantelpiece of workmanship so rare that it was talked about by the whole country, and yet it was not altogether its beauty that caused people to speak of it and remember it. It was famous rather on account of the strange scene that was carved upon it. To those who asked about its meaning, the old custodian of the castle would sometimes tell the following story. It happened more than five hundred years ago, when this castle was new and strong, and people lived and thought in very different ways than they do now. Among the young men of that time there were none more noble than Aubrey de Maudidier, the nephew of the Count of Montargis, and among all the knights who had favor at the royal court, there was none braver than the young Sieur de Narsac, captain of the king's men-at-arms. Now these two men were devoted friends, and whenever their other duties allowed them, they were sure to be in each other's company. Indeed, it was a rare thing to see either of them walking the streets of Paris alone. "'I will meet you at the tournament tomorrow,' said Aubrey gaily one evening, as he was parting from his friend. "'Yes, at the tournament tomorrow,' said de Narsac, "'and be sure that you come early.' The tournament was to be a grand affair. A gentleman from province was to run a tilt with a famous Burgundian knight. Both men were noted for the horsemanship and their skill with the lance. All Paris would be out to see them. When the time came, de Narsac was at the place appointed, but Aubrey failed to appear.' What could it mean? It was not at all like Aubrey to forget his promise. It was seldom that he allowed anything to keep him away from the tournament. "'Have you seen my friend Aubrey today?' Denarsac asked this question a hundred times. Everybody gave the same answer, and wondered what had happened. The day passed, and another day came, and still there was no news from Aubrey. Denarsac had called at his friend's lodgings, but could learn nothing.' The young man had not been seen since the morning before the tournament. Three days passed, and still not a word. Denarsac was greatly troubled. He knew now that some accident must have happened to Aubrey. But what could it have been? Early in the morning of the fourth day he was aroused by a strange noise at his door. He dressed himself in haste and opened it. A dog was crouching there. It was a greyhound, so thin that its ribs stuck out, so weak that it could hardly stand. Denarsac knew the animal without looking at the collar on its neck. It was Dragon, his friend Aubrey's greyhound, the dog who went with him whenever he went out, the dog who was never seen except in his master's company. The poor creature tried to stand. His legs trembled from weakness. He swayed from side to side. He wagged his tail feebly and tried to put his nose in Denarsac's hand. Denarsac saw at once that he was half-starved. He led the dog into his room and fed him some warm milk. He bathed the poor fellow's nose and bloodshot eyes with cold water. "'Tell me where your master is,' he said. Then he set before him a full meal that would have tempted any dog. The greyhound ate heartily and seemed to be much stronger. He licked Denarsac's hands. Then he ran to the door and tried to make signs to his friend to follow him. He whined pitifully. Denarsac understood. "'You want to lead me to your master? I see.' He put on his hat and went out with the dog. Through the narrow lanes and crooked streets of the old city, Dragon led the way. At each corner he would stop and look back to make sure that Denarsac was following. 
"'He went over the long bridge, "'the only one that spanned the river in those days. "'Then he trotted out through the gate of St. Martin "'and into the open country beyond the walls. "'In a little while the dog left the main road "'and took a bypath that led into the forest of Bondi. "'Denarsic kept his hand on his sword now, "'for they were on dangerous ground. "'The forest was a great hangout for robbers and lawless men, "'and more than one wild and wicked deed had been enacted there.' "'But Dragon did not go far into the woods. "'He stopped suddenly near a dense thicket of briars and tangled vines. "'He whined as though in great distress. "'Then he took hold of the sleeve of Dinarsek's coat "'and led him round to the other side of the thicket. "'There, under a low-spreading oak, the grass had been trampled down. "'There were signs, too, of freshly turned-up earth. "'With moans of distress the dog stretched himself upon the ground "'and with pleading eyes looked up into Dinarsek's face. "'Ah, my poor fellow!' "'said Dinarsak. "'You have led me here to show me your master's grave.' "'And with that he turned and hurried back to the city, "'but the dog would not stir from his place. "'That afternoon a company of men, led by Dinarsak, "'rode out to the forest. "'They found in the ground beneath the oak what they had expected, "'the murdered body of young Aubrey de Montdidier. "'Who could have done this foul deed?' they asked of one another. "'And then they wept, for they all loved Aubrey. "'They made a litter of green branches and laid the body upon it. Then, the dog following them, they carried it back to the city and buried it in the king's cemetery, and all Paris mourned the untimely end of the brave young knight. After this, the greyhound went to live with the young Sieur de Narzac. He followed the knight wherever he went. He slept in his room and ate from his hand. He seemed to be as much devoted to his new master as he had been to the old. One morning they went out for a stroll to the city. The streets were crowded, for it was a holiday, and all the fine people of Paris were enjoying the sunlight and the fresh air. Dragon, as usual, kept close to the heels of his master. Dinarsac walked down one street and up another, meeting many of his friends and now and then stopping to talk a little while. Suddenly, as they were passing a corner, the dog leaped forward and planted himself in front of his master. He growled fiercely and crouched as though ready for a spring. His eyes were fixed upon someone in the crowd. Then, before Dinarsac could speak, he leaped forward upon a young man whom he had singled out. The man threw up his arm to protect his throat, but the quickness of the attack and the weight of the dog caused him to fall to the ground. There was no telling what might have followed had not those who were with him beaten the dog with their canes and driven him away. Dinarsac knew the man. His name was Richard McCare, and he belonged to the king's bodyguard. Never before had the ground been known to show anger toward any person. "'What do you mean by such conduct?' asked his master as they walked homeward. Dragon's only answer was a low growl, but it was the best that he could give. The affair had put a thought into Dinarsac's mind, which he could not dismiss. Within less than a week the thing happened again. This time McCare was walking in the public garden. Dinarsac and the dog were some distance away, but as soon as Dragon saw the man, he rushed at him. It was all that the bystanders could do to keep him from throttling McCare. Dinarsac hurried up and called him away, but the dog's anger was fearful to see. It was well known in Paris that McCare and young Aubrey had not been friends. It was remembered that they had had more than one quarrel, and now the people began to talk about the dog's strange actions, and someone so far as to put this and that together. At last the matter reached the ears of the king. He sent for Dinarsac and had a long talk with him. "'Come back tomorrow and bring the dog with you,' he said. "'We must find out more about this strange affair.' The next day Dinarsac, with dragging at his heels, was admitted into the king's audience room. The king was seated in his great chair, and many knights and men-at-arms were standing around him. 
Hardly had the Narsac stepped inside when the dog leaped quickly forward. He had seen Macaire, and had singled him out from among all the rest. He sprang upon him. He would have torn him to pieces if no one had interfered. There was now only one way to explain the matter. "'This greyhound,' said de Narsac, "'is here to denounce the Chevalier Macaire as a slayer of his master, young Aubrey de Montdidier. He demands that justice be done, and that the murderer be punished for his crime.' The Chevalier Macaire was pale and trembling. He stammered a denial of his guilt, and declared that the dog was a dangerous beast, and ought to be put out of the way. "'Shall a soldier in the service of a king be accused by a dog?' he cried. "'Shall he be condemned on such testimony as this? I, too, demand justice.' "'Let the judgment of God decide,' cried the knights who were present. And so the king declared that there should be a trial by the judgment of God." For in those rude times it was a very common thing to determine guilt or innocence in this way, that is, by a combat between the accuser and the accused. In such cases it was believed that God would always aid the cause of the innocent and bring about the defeat of the guilty. The combat was to take place that very afternoon in the great common by the riverside. The king's herald made a public announcement of it, naming the dog as the accuser and the chevalier Macaire as the accused. A great crowd of people assembled to see this strange trial by the judgment of God. The king and his officers were there to make sure that no injustice was done to either the man or the dog. The man was allowed to defend himself with a short stick. The dog was given a barrel into which he might run, if too closely pressed. At a signal the combat began. Macaire stood on his guard while the dog darted swiftly around him, dodging the blows that were aimed at him, and trying to get at his enemy's throat. The man seemed to have lost all his courage. His breath came short and quick. He was trembling from head to foot. Suddenly the dog leaped upon him and threw him to the ground. In great terror, Macaire cried to the king for mercy and acknowledged his guilt. "'It is the judgment of God,' cried the king. The officers rushed in and dragged the dog away before he could harm the guilty man. Macaire was hurried off to the punishment which his crimes deserved." And this is the scene that was carved on the old mantelpiece in the castle of Montargis. This strange trial by the judgment of God. Is it not fitting that a dog so faithful, devoted, and brave should have his memory thus preserved in stone? We'll return with our second story right after these sponsor messages. And now, and now the and now the Achilles' heel by James Baldwin. Many of us have heard the expression the Achilles heel, and there may be some younger listeners in the audience who don't understand where the expression comes from. This famous story from Greek mythology reminds us that every human being has a place where he can be hurt, and that even the strongest people need to be aware of their own vulnerabilities. We should also remember that once we've seen someone else's soft spot, we usually do not want to hit it. In battle, taking advantage of a weakness is smart. In everyday living, it's cruel. Mightiest of all the Greeks who went to fight the Trojans was Achilles. He was the son of King Peleus and the sea nymph Thetis. And when he was born, a soothsayer predicted that his life, though glorious, would be short. His mother determined to prove the prophecy wrong, and that her son would never die. With the child in her arms, she went down to the gloomy kingdom of Hades. There, around the underworld, flowed the dark river Styx, the sacred stream by which the gods swore unbreakable oaths. If a mortal were dipped into its black waters, no sword or arrow or other weapon could ever injure him. Thetis held the boy by the heel, between her thumb and forefinger, and gently lowered him into the stream. 
The mysterious river enveloped the infant hero and hardened his flesh against all harm. In her haste to get out of that sunless world, however, the loving mother forgot that the waters had not touched the child's skin where she gripped him, and so in that heel, and only there, lay a tiny spot where he could be harmed. She carried the babe back and showed her work proudly to Peleus. The father's gray locks and wrinkled visage scared the child, and Peleus turned away, saying, He is, after all, only a little whiner, and they therefore called him Legiron, which means whining. But soon Peleus sent the young Legiron to live with the wise centaur Chiron, a creature half man and half horse, who had a famous school for heroes on the wooded slopes of Mount Pelion. Chiron changed the lad's name to Achilles and fed him with the hearts of lions and the marrow of bears and wild boars. The boy learned how to use the bow and manage horses, and how to take care of his own body that he might always be strong and brave. He slept in the open air and chased wild boars through the forest and overthrew savage robbers in mountain passes. And when he was finished at Chiron's school, he went back to his home a tall, yellow-haired youth, strong-limbed and as graceful as he was brave. His mother wept when she saw him, for she remembered the old soothsayer's prophecy. But his old father was proud of him and took him out to show him the treasures of his palace. Here, said the king, is the matchless armor of bronze which the gods gave me on my wedding day. No man has ever worn it, but soon you will be big enough for it to fit you. See this fair, round shield with many an image of beauty engraved upon it, and this helmet with its nodding horsehair plume. Was ever anything so delightful to a young warrior's eye? And here is the ashen spear which your arms will soon be able to hurl. And lastly, here are swift and old gold, the noblest steeds that any mortal ever owned. All these things are yours, my son." And so Achilles grew up to be one of the greatest heroes. He sailed with the Greeks in the long war against Troy, and there proved himself to be the champion of his people. But as strong as he was, and as brave as he was, he was not perfect, as no mortal is. He wanted to make sure everyone knew he was the strongest and bravest. He thought and talked too much of his own glory. He had a hot temper. When he did not get his way, he sat in his tent and pouted, and his doom, which the soothsayer had foretold, came soon enough. One day, while hard fighting was going on beneath the walls of Troy, Achilles drove his chariot close up to the famous gate and stopped to taunt the unhappy Trojans who stood upon the battlements. Vainly did the faithful steed Old Gold champ upon his foaming bit and rear in his traces and strain hard against his rein, for he knew of the fate that threatened his master and wanted to carry him away from the danger. But Achilles, standing high in the chariot, boasted of his great deeds how from the sea he had laid waste twelve cities, and from the land eleven, how he had banished the queen of the Amazons, and had slain Hector, the hope of the Trojans, how he had taken great spoils and countless treasures from many lands, and how, in all the world, there was no name so terrible as his, no, not even the name of the sun-bright Apollo. But scarcely had the last rash boast passed his lips when a gleaming spear circled down upon him from above. His armor could not ward off the swift death it brought. Some say the fatal weapon was hurled from the battlements by Paris, the perfidious prince who had caused all that sad war. Others assert it came from the hands of no mortal man, but was cast from the sky by great Apollo himself, offended beyond measure by the hero's boasting. I do not know which of these stories is true, nor does it matter now. All I need say is that the missile found the one mark on the heel where it could tear the flesh, 
"'the destroyer of three-and-twenty cities "'fell headlong and helpless in the dust, "'as many another boaster has done since his day. "'And the great world went on as before. "'And his wonderful war-steeds, "'no longer restrained by his voice and hand, "'sprang wildly away "'and galloped with the speed of wind "'across the plains. "'Thanks for joining us for these two "'James Baldwin short stories. "'This is your host and storyteller, "'John Hagedorn.' and we'll return next Sunday night at 8 p.m. Eastern Time with a brand new classic short story. Until then, everyone, stay safe, and we'll be back soon.